Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Won't you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that there have been many moments over this past year that peace has felt too far away. We acknowledge that there have been times this past year when our peace has felt insecure. We acknowledge our shared desire for your safe presence of peace as we move forward in our Advent journey. Holy God, we thank you for the gift of peace that is found in Jesus. Remind us of the safety and security of our peace as we enter into a time of longing and seeking of peace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found pleasing in your sight. Amen. As Pastor Bill already told us, today is the second Sunday of Advent. It is a Sunday that's set apart to specifically speak about the peace that we are all longing and hoping for. And if you were here last week, you, you, you kind of heard a little painting, a picture that was painted of Advent. And I'm going to just run over that real quick just as a way of reminder. And, and if you weren't here, thank you for being here today. This will kind of help orient your mind, your soul, and your heart towards what we're going to be looking at through our text. So we spoke about Advent not being a holiday to celebrate, but instead Advent being a season that is entered into. There's a difference. This is not just a thing that we do to be like, yay, it's actually a season and it serves a purpose. Advent is a time for us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, not only in the world around us, because let's be honest, the world is pretty dark sometimes, but it, it also forces us to take a fearless inventory of, of the darkness in the world within us. So not only do we look outward towards the darkness of the world, but we acknowledge that there are still some dark spots in our soul that we may not have done all that we could do and, and we're still holding back in certain areas. It's a time for that. It is a season of hope, of hope because we know that in Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the God, in, in him, the God of Israel has broken in and made his life and life available to all who are his and he is coming back. He broke in once, he's coming again. Amen, yes. Advent is a time of acknowledging, again, that we may not have done all that we can at times to join God in his just work in our communities and in this city. Advent is a season that serves as a pocket in time for recalibration. It gets us back to where we need to be. It is a season that serves to create a framework 
for the overall flourishing of life. Advent is a big deal, and there is a lot at stake. So it is time for us to slow down and to pause, to wait in anticipation and expectation that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Amen? Robert E. Weber, who wrote a book called Ancient Future Time, it's, it's ordered around the Christian calendar, has this beautiful line about the, just the weight of Advent, and I'm going to share this line, this quote with you. He says, what is at stake during Advent is an assessment of our, cor- our current state of faith and living and our commitment to keep on living in the hope to which we have been called. Again, it's a big deal. So with that call to abide, to remain, endure to a living hope in hard times being made, because let's be honest, it ain't all that sweet outside our door. Now, I I want you to hear my heart. There is beauty everywhere. God is doing good work through good people everywhere, but darkness remains. And we should never settle uh, unless it's all gone. We should be working to ushering in the second coming. I know that that's not something you want to hear. But we should be working tirelessly so that Jesus can come back and make all things right because our heart is broken that they aren't the way they ought to be. So with this call to abide, remain, and endure to a living hope in hard times being made, we turn back to the prophet Isaiah and we turn back to the world that the prophetic speech is being proclaimed in because all of this stuff that we're reading, right, it's happening in time and place. It's just not happening disconnected from the people. It's, it's connected to a people and to a very specific place. So in Isaiah 1, verse 1, we read that the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, right? Like we read that opening line. So it's telling us that Isaiah's prophetic speech is mainly concerned with the kingdom of Judah around 700 to 740-ish BC. So that gives us a time and a place. That's settled. And, and we need to know that in that time and place, to the east of them were these folks called the Assyrians. They were kind of scary. And they were coming. They were an empire that was far too much for Judah and Jerusalem to handle. Handle. And it was only a matter of time before the Assyrians made their move on God's people. And in chapter 10 of Isaiah, we read that uh, Assyria was feeling itself a little bit. It was a little boastful and proudful. And Isaiah heard their boast of bringing down those who sit on thrones. Brought it to God, and God through him speaks. But what Assyria didn't know, that they were clueless to, was the fact that they were just tools in God's hands. Assyria's boasting and going on about how they have been the ones to cut down the great, and then God says to them, shall the axe boast over him who hews it? They were just tools in God's hand. 
God then pronounces a word of judgment. He says, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God himself has painted a picture of chopped down trees and of devastation. War was on the horizon, but what the people wanted was peace. And it is here that we open up today. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall each draw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. This is a picture of the coming king. So what we're going to do is just talk about a couple of things regarding this coming king. So in verse 1, first what we're going to do is talk about the king's DNA. Look at verse 1 again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. See, judgment in Isaiah is often spoken about or described as a cutting down of trees. This language, this picture is being painted for us over and over again. The people knew who Jesse was. He was King David's father. So the mention of a shoot coming forth out of the stump of Jesse carried weight with the people. God's people had flourished under the reign of David. Israel was well. And after David, things had not gone well. So the people lived in anticipation of the day when one, the Messiah, would come again to restore them to prosperity and flourishing life. You see, the stump of Jesse means that the Davidic line has been cut down. So a shoot springing forth out of it meant that the experience of living with a good king was going to be reestablished. They had hope that this was going to happen. This was a hopeful word to a hopeless people. But what they didn't know then, but we know now, is that this picture of a good king of the past was but a foreshadow of the great king to come. 
And this king is not only greater, he is also stronger. Verse 2, the king's strength. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This passage is pointing us to an ushering in of peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what these 10 verses are doing. And this peace is a supernatural peace that will require supernatural strength. Beloved, the coming king, the one that was coming in their time, the one that we know today, but we also know is coming back is just different. He's not like anyone else. His strength comes from the fact that he is different in character. His strength, according to this text, comes from the Spirit's anointing. Listen, the Spirit's anointing and the coming King's mission of peace are inseparable. And that means something for us today. We try to move in our own power to to effect change for good, but without the Spirit, it's not going to happen. The spirit of the Lord that rested upon Jesus is what made Jesus Jesus. (laughs) It's what made him altogether different. It's what made him a greater king. They wanted a good. He was great. And his greatness was born out of the anointing of the spirit. He was dripping it. (laughs) He was soaked with the spirit. Soaked with it. Like most of us are familiar with Jesus' baptism at the river. And if you're not, Jesus himself. Is that me? Okay. I wasn't even moving, but okay. (laughs) It must be the spirit. (laughs) Most of us are familiar with Jesus' baptism. Jesus himself, God, right? Gets baptized. In the Jordan River, he goes to his cousin John, the wild man out in the desert. But when he does it, something crazy happens. As he's entering into the water, like as he goes in and up, everyone hears the audible voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then they see the spirit, right, descending like a dove. And what do we picture the dove as being? A a, a symbol of what? Peace. Peace. The Spirit rests on Jesus. It just doesn't visit him one day and then leave. It rests. It remains. It's inseparable from his very being. He and he alone is full of wisdom and understanding. Look at the way that the text couples these things. There is wisdom and there is understanding. You can't understand without wisdom. And you can't be wise without understanding. We're usually good at one or the other. Jesus is both. He alone is sufficient for counsel and might. He's enough to give us a word, and he's enough to be our muscle. So when we need advice, we turn to his word, and when we are weak, He flexes for us. 
He and he alone is full of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And all of these spirit-given attributes makes him a just judge. Verse 3, the king's judgment. And his delight shall bear fruit in the fear of the Lord. Or shall be in the fear of the Lord. I'm sorry. I saw the other thing. I'm getting older and the glasses, different glasses for different seasons. You got to rock with me. I'm going to try it again. You ready? You're going to extend some grace to me? Thank you. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. That's pretty funny. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the basic characteristic of a wise and godly person. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, understanding, all that good stuff. Now, I know that we do not like the word fear, especially when it's used in conjunction with God. This is one of those things that people like to grab and throw at you and be like, how could God be good if I got to be scared of him? Right? They do all of this stuff to us. And we, we kind of like backtrack because it's, it's a valid point. The word, but we got to look at how these words are used and what they kind of mean for us today. I know that this word fear throws some of us off. I get it. But the fear of the Lord is not terror of the Lord. It is awe of the Lord. When we say that, we're not talking about being terrified of who God is. We're talking about being awestruck of who God is. Just standing there. It, it's, the fear of the Lord stops us where we are because what, or better yet, who stands before us is awe-inspiring. That's what that fear of the Lord... We delight in being awed time and time again by who Jesus is. You, how can you stand in front of Jesus and not be awed? If he's everything that we say he is, like if we saw him, wouldn't we just fall on our face? In worship and praise, his judgment is different. Again, this fear of the Lord is not terror of the Lord. It is awe of the Lord. But here's the thing. And again, I get it. God is scary sometimes. If we're being honest, at least. If you're not trying to be super Christian, acting like you got your life all together when you don't, God is scary I get it because he scares me a lot. We don't always know what to do with him, and that's okay. Let's just stand firm and look deeply into his love for us in Christ. When we fear that, feel that fear of the Lord, that awestruckness, I know it's kind of scary, but just stand firm and look at him. Look deep. The same way we're taking a fearless inventory of the darkness... And that was our hope because hope is born out of longing. When we stand before, we need to like, just look and let ourselves be awestruck. He's that good. He is that good. And if we do that, if we look deeply into God's love for us in Christ, I promise you we will walk away being better for it. Anyway... This coming king, his judgment is different. 
and we read it in his text. Jesus' judgment is different because he is a wise and spirit-filled king. His strength, the anointing, this, this is what I'm told. This is where you start to see it play out in the way that he judges. He does not judge by what he sees, meaning he doesn't judge by external appearances. He sees deeper into us than we think he can. Like what we hide from the world is an open book to him. The secrets that we keep from ourselves, he hears them. So he doesn't need to judge with his eyes. He doesn't need to judge what his ears. And when he looks out at the world, like it doesn't matter what we adorn ourselves with. He knows who we are. I can fool you, but I can't fool him. His judgment is better. He always cuts to the heart of the truth. And because of that, because of the king's DNA, because of the king's strength, because his judgment is different, we are safe with him. Verse 4, the king's protection. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Kind of scary, right? But listen, the people that are hearing this, God's people, they had grown accustomed to wicked kings. They were used to those type of kings. Kings who exploited and oppressed them. But Isaiah's coming king was not like them. His rule would be filled with justice and they will have their rights protected. It's something that they weren't used to. There was going to be actually a king that was coming that was for them. That was going to take care of them. They have forgot what that's even like. Now, isn't that true of us? Isn't that what any one of us wants? To be treated justly and to have our rights protected? This king, our Jesus, he is different. His character is different. So, so let's look at his character a bit more. Verse 5, the king's character. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Loins is a funny word, I'm sorry. I just got to get out of the way. So righteousness and faithfulness. These are two fundamental characteristics of Isaiah's king and our Jesus as we know him. Jesus is righteous in that he always acts according to what the father thinks it's right. Jesus don't move without his pops. I and the father are what? One. That's his righteousness. He, he does not act according to what someone else expects from him. He acts according to what his father thinks it's right. Period. Full stop. That is the righteousness of Jesus on full and beautiful display. 
So Jesus is righteous. He is also faithful in that he is committed to whatever the Father directs him to do. That's what faithfulness is. And to, to, and to Christ and God, like, uh, for us, that's what faithfulness is. It's a commitment to do whatever we're directed to do. Period. Whether we like it or not. Jesus was faithful unto the cross. Which one of us wants to walk into that? He had these conversations. We're preaching through John. You see all these conversations he's having. His disciples don't know what's going on. He does. That's the faithfulness of Jesus. That in that moment, knowing what lies ahead, he is speaking words of love, encouragement, and comfort to those who follow him, to those that he loves, those who serve him. He tells them, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Because no greater love has one than this, than to lay down his life for his brother, right? Like, this is Jesus. He is different, and only he can bring about true and lasting peace. And this is where we get to the kind of meat of the sermon. We're going to talk about the king's peace, verses 6 through 9. And listen to this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the cat and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Now, the imagery, the picture that is being painted here for us is powerful. We think about that all the time, the lion and the lamb. The picture of a lion laying down with a lamb and not eating him. He could if he wanted to. And maybe somewhere down deep inside he does want to. Because it may be in his nature, but he doesn't. That's not regular peace, y'all. It's not. It's not how we think of it. In fact, if you look, if we go back to verse 4, let, let me do that. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The Messiah makes war in order to bring about peace. That's a word for somebody. And I'm going to tell you why it's a word for somebody. Sometimes we're going to have to go at war with those things that enslave and shackle us. So that Jesus can loosen the bonds. That's going to have to happen. But it won't happen unless you're willing to go to war with it. To say no, 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 no. Unless you're willing to fight the instinct to eat the lamb. Unless you're willing to go against everything that's in your nature. To be a person of peace. To be the type of person that Jesus has purchased. 
His choice of weapon for war is his word. It's what he uses. How, how does Jesus go to war? With his word. Like a scepter out of his mouth, right? Like the, the breath of his lips. This is the same breath. If you, We're going to get to it in John, right? That at the end of John, after Jesus is crucified and they don't know what's going on. Sorry, Pastor Bill. All right. You're going to get a preview real quick. They were scared. So they hid. They went back to the crib to close the door. And they were just talking about what just happened. Imagine how they must feel, right? And then out of nowhere, Jesus just pops up. He didn't even knock. They're terrified. And then what does he do? Because he's good like that. He sees that they're scared and he breathes peace, spirit, right? Jesus makes a scared people a sent people. But with his spirit and with his peace. And that all comes from his word. That's his weapon of war. With his word, he brings forth peace. He brings forth peace with the Father. He's the one that makes us right with God. He brings forth peace with others. Now that because we have this reconciled relationship with God, we can even attempt to be reconciled to one another because reconciliation ain't easy. Amen, anybody? But it's worthwhile. But more than anything, we can have peace with ourselves. We all want peace, but the peace that we seek is not an absence of hostility or violence. It is a state of being that is best captured um, in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom can be described as an overall sense of well-being, wholeness, and harmony that invades all of our relationships. And we want that for ourselves, all of us. Um, Rich Villotas, who is a pastor out in New York, I'm just shouting out a fellow New Yorican right now, says this about this type of peace. He says, isn't this what you yearn for? Aren't you tired of living at a pace that blurs out beauty, peace, or joy? Don't you want to be at home? The speed we live at does violence against our souls. The inner and outer distractions minimize the capacity for us to see God's activity around and within us. We want that peace, right? That's shalom. That's a peace that isn't dependent on whether war is jumping off on the other side of the world. It's, it's something inside of us that we carry. It's inexplicable. It, we don't have words for it, but we know it. We feel it. We exist in there. It's, again, it's a state of well-being, wholeness, and harmony. It's far more than the absence of violence. Some of us don't think God is good if stuff is bad. I don't get that. See, God is good not because there exists an absence of difficulties or hard circumstances. He's good because he's good in the midst of difficulties and hard circumstances. It's not that he removes it, it's that he stands with us and he is for us. He is nearer to us than we think. 
That is the goodness and the peace of God, that even though there's war all around us and sometimes within us, he, Emmanuel, is with us. We also want shalom for the world around us, the one that we live in, our communities, our blocks, our neighborhoods. I want it for Gun Hill Projects. That's where I grew up. We want it. We desire these things. And if we're honest, we probably dream of peace. We go, oh, wouldn't it be nice, right? Every Miss Universe pageant, right? You already know what I'm going to say, right? What do they want? That wasn't that hard. <laughs> so we dream of it. We dream of it for our world. But we need to know, and I want you to hear me, that this dream of ours, it just doesn't come from us. It comes from somewhere, or better yet, from someone else. Walter Brueggemann writes this, peace is a dream that is uttered first on the lips of God. A dream that speaks against all settled political reality, an act of imagination from the throne of heaven in which we are invited to participate. And he wrote this as a commentary to this text that we're going through today. So he says, this text invites us to dream along after God in a certitude that the world judges to be outrageous. A dream that speaks, an act of imagination a work that we are invited into in time and in place, right where we are, wherever we are, in that moment. He calls it an outrageous peace. Now, I like that. I like the sound of it. I like the idea of it. It is something that I want, but wanting it is good, but it gets better, y'all, because all of it is possible because of Jesus. It's actually possible. Jesus, again, he's the one that makes us right with the Father. None of us without Jesus could stand before God with a not guilty verdict. <laughs> That's not going to happen. None of us can stand blemish-free before a good, just God. But because of Jesus, we can. Now, we're going to go back to the garden real quick. You probably heard me say this again, but I love saying it because it's true. In the garden, our first parents, they were set in the middle of paradise. God gives them dominion over stuff. He even let Adam, like, name the stuff that he made. That's a good father. I'm telling my kids what stuff is. I ain't going to tell them you can decide what it is for. <laughs> but this was God. This is what he did. And, but then he says, like, well, there's a certain restriction. slowly slide over here. There's a, there's a certain restriction, and, and we don't like restrictions, because we think they're limitations. They're actually it, restrictions, God-given restrictions, they're a framework for flourishing, but that's another sermon. They didn't like it, so what, what happens? You look at the one thing you can't touch. Always like that. We're just like that. Satan, through the serpent, sees it, and then they, that whole little game plays. Y'all know the story. They eat the fruit, they're naked, and what does the text say? They feel what? Shame. So they hide. 
They try to make clothes for themselves. It doesn't work. They couldn't cover their shame. They're hiding. God one day is taking a walk through the garden, and he's like, Adam. He was like, I'm here. What are you doing? I'm hiding. Word, why are you hiding? I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? I made you this way. I was, I was good with it. You didn't feel like this before. What happened? Then the blame game. Well, the woman you gave me. <laughs> now nah, it was the serpent that you made. So all of a sudden, it was God's fault. Man, don't we do that? And don't, like our first parents, don't we try to cover our shame? Don't we work to cover it? It didn't work, though, so they were naked and hiding. So what does God do in his kindness and his goodness and in his love? He covers them. By what? Killing something. So he clothed them. No more shame. Now, for us, we know that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Amen? So you know what that means? That means when we mess up, God doesn't see our sin and shame. He sees his son. This is what we're talking about here. This is the Jesus who makes us right with the Father, and this is the Jesus who makes us right with one another. We read this in, in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, right? Like all of this beautiful language. And you know what? Let me just read it. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We don't got to be hostile to each other. Jesus has broke down that wall. No need. I ain't got to be salty at you forever. I might be salty in a season, and you might be salty with me in a season, but not forever. Amen? We are people, and we have feelings. I get it. I'm not trying to dismiss nobody's feeling, but if we're going to have, like, these extended perpetual pity parties, then the Spirit of the Lord is not resting on us. We're walking in our own spirit. Because his brings about peace, shalom, overall wellness, wholeness, harmony. So we got seasons of it, but we can't stay there forever. Jesus makes that possible. And lastly, we see in our text the hidden life of the king or the king's hidden life. It's, it's hard to spot at first. Let me read it, then let me tell you what I'm talking about. This is how... Our passage for today closes. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. His resting place shall be glorious. The hidden life of the king is a glorious life, one that is not absent of suffering, in fact, in, in, in chapter 53, Isaiah, when prophesying about him, calls him, what, the suffering servant. And we know what he did on our behalf. But more than anything, what this last verse, verse 10, is telling us is that the Messiah, the Messiah is at home in divine glory. And he welcomes all who inquire of him. He welcomes all who inquire, who seek after him. He welcomes them into that same glory, even though they didn't produce it, even though they probably don't earn it, 
didn't earn it, even though they probably can't keep it. Still, when you read the text, and remember the context, God's people, Israel, Assyria, scared. They're way too powerful for us. They're going to kill us all and overtake us. It is going to happen. Don't worry. The shoot will come. Like he's pointing forward, he does all of this stuff. But right there, there's already friction. You can tell. There's God's people, and then there's the other people. We just said that he, like God, Jesus makes us right with God the Father. Then we read Ephesians 2.14. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, and now we can have peace with one another. Look at verse 10 again. Of him shall the nations, plural. So when we say all nations, what we're saying is all peoples, not just some, all. This is the beauty of the coming king. Jesus himself is our peace. He is our advent hope. He is our advent peace. And we should seek him daily. Daily. Seek the king and his peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the coming king who not only rescues us, but the one who protects us, the one who justly judges us, the one who makes his peace ours. Father, we confess that we have not always been peaceful people. Yet you still love us. And for that, we worship and praise you. So, Father, as we think about this this coming week, as we meditate on your word, help us to not judge by external appearances. Help us to see you when we see others. Help us to be able to sit with ourselves and know that you have loved us and that you are doing a work in our day that we wouldn't believe even if you told us. We love you, God, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.